Uh, If you uh, listen to the television adverts, you'll soon begin to believe that you are such a wonderful person that you should put yourself first and above everyone else. L'Oreal tells you to pamper yourself with their products because you're worth it. Thompson Holidays, the number one tour operator in Britain, tells you to look after number one by letting number one look after you. And Booper tells you to take their health care by uh, their health insurance uh, to take care of your health uh, because you're amazing. You're worth it. You're number one. You're amazing. The world flatters us and pampers us and strokes our already inflated egos and it all sounds so positive. It makes me feel so great about myself. It helps me, in the words of the Whitney Houston song, to indulge in the greatest love of all, to learn to love myself. Which is, of course, the driving force behind a capitalist economy. People wanting to better themselves, wanting things for themselves, because I want to love myself, and if I love myself, I want to give myself everything. Now, when I was in the uh, newspaper business, I worked hard because I wanted the next promotion. I wanted to climb the corporate ladder because I wanted the status and the material benefits that went with a higher position. And to my shame, to my deep shame, in that cutthroat business environment, as I fought for that promotion, I was willing to put others down in the process. Now, well, I'm ashamed of my behaviour, but at the time I could easily justify it because I'm worth it. Because I'm number one. I'm amazing. In that ruthless world of business, we see where all of that kind of thinking, that kind of living, leaves us. If I'm looking after myself, if I'm number one, and you're looking after yourself, and you think you're number one, when it comes to the next promotion, one of us is going to get hurt, which is exactly what happens in life. See, this selfish, self-indulgent pursuit of my interests is why the world is such a cruel place. It's why injustice and equality is rampant in our world. In promoting ourselves, we push others down. In looking out for ourselves, we forget the needs of others. In putting my own interest to the fore, I inevitably relegate the interests of others as a kind of secondary issue at best. That is largely how our world operates. But Christians are to be different. For we are citizens of a different world. Matthew and Anna are citizens of a different world. We are citizens of heaven, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. There's no need to look it up, but we'll come to it in a few weeks' time. We are citizens of heaven, and heaven's citizens march to the beat of a different drum. We are to be people who put others first, who consider others more important than ourselves, who look not only to our interests, but to the interests of those around us. That is the big message of this section of Philippians. Just look at chapter 2 and verse 3. Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves, and that is more important than you. Each of you should look not only to your interests, but also to the interests of others. Now do you see, this is so countercultural, but that is how heaven operates, and that is how you and I as Christian people need to operate in a world which constantly looks, tells us to look after ourselves. And so Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Now that phrase, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, is a phrase that often comes up in the Bible. In different places it means different things. It means lying and not cheating. It means being kind and compassionate and forgiving others. But here Paul has one very specific meaning for that phrase. To live a life worthy of the gospel means, do you see it there at the end of verse 27, to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Here's your first heading, if you want a heading, if you're taking notes. As citizens of heaven, we are to strive together for the gospel. We are to strive together for the gospel. Chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. See, to live a life worthy of the gospel, as we see there in verse 27, in this context, is about a church family proclaiming the gospel as one having a kind of unity and purpose, the purpose of contending for the gospel, putting aside all personal goals, all those ambitions that we, you, you may have, and being united together in a single-minded devotion to make the faith of the gospel known. Ah, the specific words in verse 20 show us how to do that. Verse 27 shows us how to do that. The word contend in verse 27 comes from the Olympic arena. We actually get the word athletics from this word contend. It's the idea of an, of an athletics pursuit of one goal. Watch uh, the athlete strain hard to win the prize. That's how we're to be when we're to be contending for the gospel. But as you have that picture of the athlete in your mind, please don't think of the 100 metre runner. Because the whole point of this is this is not an individual sport, this is a team sport. So you see in verse 27, we're to contend as one man. More literally, this one man is of being one-minded. We are to be collectively single-minded. So don't think of the 100 metres. Uh, you see, amid much controversy this week, the London 2012 Olympic mascots have been launched. Have you seen them? I heard one person describe them as amorphous, single-eyed, computer-generated smurfs. I, I, I take it that he doesn't like them. Uh, but while the dissenters offered their opinions, I was reminded of happier Olympic memories, and especially that fantastic race in Beijing two years ago when the Coxless Fours won another rowing gold medal for Team GB by almost just the, the width of paint on their boat. It was that close, but we won. It's an event which we've made our own, starting, do you remember, with Steve Redgrave and then Matthew Pinsent and all the others. The Coxless Fours event is a terrific example of what it means to contend as one man. In the Coxless Fours, to achieve anything, all four rowers had to strive athletically towards one goal. Had they at any point decided to do their own thing, either in training or in the event itself, they would have lost. It was that close. As a church family, living a life worthy of the gospel was here striving a, a, a collective single-mindedness for the faith of the gospel. Standing side by side, standing firm in the faith, striving together, putting all our petty ambitions to one side. What are your little ambitions? It doesn't matter what they are. I'm striving with the rest of this church in one direction. So different from the way the world operates, isn't it? Oh yes, you can see in the world sometimes great teamwork. I can think in in the newspaper business, there were times of great teamwork. But really it was only because we wanted to better ourselves individually. It just suited us to work as a team. This is the opposite. Even when it doesn't suit us to work as a team, we're going to work as a team. In the church then, there's no place for a single-minded selfishness. No, we must have a single-minded togetherness. 
And not least of all, because as we do stand for the gospel, there will be opposition. As um, Matthew and Anna will find out. As we will all find out. As we, most of us, if we're Christian, will know already, there is opposition when you stand for Jesus. Look at verse 27. That's why Paul writes as he does. Verse 27, end of verse 27. Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and that you'll be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but listen, also to suffer for him. Oh, that's been granted to you. In other words, it's a privilege. I'm going to give you the privilege not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. The problem is it doesn't feel much like a privilege at the time, which is why we need each other. It's tough to stand up as a Christian at school, at at university, uh, in unbelieving families, amongst unbelieving friends. It's tough, it costs, and that's exactly why we need to stand together. So first point, strive together for the gospel. And we do that second point by putting others first for the gospel. That's chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. You see, the only way we'll strive together is if we put our own interest to one side. That's what we're going to see in verses 1 to 4. The church in Philippi was wonderfully united in contending for the gospel. It's a great letter. It's such an encouragement reading for Philippians, isn't it? In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul rejoiced in their partnership in the gospel. Last week, in chapter 1, verse 18, we saw how the Philippians had been praying for Paul to be able to stand up for the gospel. They were right behind him. Largely, the church in Philippi was wonderfully united in contending for the gospel, but there were two women who'd lost the plot. Turn with me to chapter 4, verse 2, towards the end of the book. Chapter 4, verse 2. Have you uh, read Philippians and come across these two women before? I plead with you, O dear, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. They'd fallen out with each other, did she? Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. It's a very striking few words. Euodia and Syntyche had fallen out. Some people call them odious and so touchy. I don't know whether they were like that or not, but these two women had previously, verse 3, stood shoulder to shoulder with Paul in contending for the gospel. And note the word contending there. It's the same word we saw in chapter 1, verse 27. See, these two women had, with Paul and with others, and with each other, contended for the gospel, but now, because they'd fallen out over something or other, they wouldn't do that anymore. And so, verse 2 Chapter 4, verse 2, Paul pleads with them to patch up their differences, to agree in the Lord, and to get on again with contending for the gospel. Now, you see, when people in churches fall out with each other, it hinders gospel proclamation. It is a disaster. We can't possibly strive with a collective single-mindedness for the faith of the gospel if we're at each other's throats. And why will we only ever be at each other's throats? Because when we've got our own petty agendas, when we want this or we want that, it doesn't matter what you want, says Paul. Why unity in the gospel is so important in a church. Oh, as I've been preparing this this week, I have been giving thanks to God for the unity in this church. I rejoice that we are partners together in contending for the gospel. Because it is a disaster when churches are not like that, and there are plenty that aren't. 
I mean, think of the PCC this week, the elected decision-making body of this church. Over the past four years, we've had to grapple with some pretty big and important issues. But again and again, often after lively debate and, and often with strong opinions offered, again and again, we voted in agreement unanimously on the way forward. It's wonderful. I thank God for a PCC contending for the gospel as one man with a single-minded togetherness. I rejoice as we contend together in taking the gospel to this neighbourhood. Wasn't it fantastic during the Passion for Life mission? And again in the guest events that we held just a few weeks ago. Fantastic to see people inviting their friends, getting behind those events, saying, yeah, I'm in this with you. We're in it together. Contending for the faith of the gospel as one man, all heading in the same gospel direction. It's so wonderful. And we should cherish that gospel unity. We should guard it, defend it, and value it so highly that we will challenge those like Euodia and Syntyche who have their own agendas. Let's put those to one side. We indeed must confront those who are driven by their own selfish, self-centred schemes. Oh, I want this kind of music or that kind of service. It doesn't matter. It's not important. And verses 1 to 4 remind us to put others first for the gospel. And so Paul writes, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He asks four questions in verse 1. Do you see them? Are you united with Christ? That is, have you joined your life to his? Just as we've seen that Matthew and Anna have done tonight. Well, they've done it before tonight, but they've stood and said they've done it. Are you united with Christ? Are you confront, uh, comforted by his love? That is, do you look at the cross of Christ and find your security and not in the knowledge that Jesus died for you? We heard that from the front tonight. Wasn't it wonderful? Do you have fellowship with the Spirit? Fellowship is the partnership word that we keep seeing in this letter. We saw it first in chapter 1, verse 6. So the fellowship of the Spirit is the way the Holy Spirit gives you a desire to be with other Christians, to stand with other Christians in gospel ministry. You'll know that when you become a Christian, how suddenly you want to be with other Christians. Do you have that? And then fourthly, he says, do you know the tenderness and compassion that God has for you? See, those are marks, four marks of being a Christian. Paul is saying in four different ways, are you a real Christian, verse 1? If you are then, verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Verses 1 and 2 are very simple. They are saying, if you are a Christian, stand firm in one spirit, contend as one man. He's working out chapter 1, verse 27. Be like-minded in having a single-minded togetherness for the gospel. Don't squabble and argue about insignificant things, but be one in spirit and purpose. And very simply, he says, put others first. It's not complicated, this passage. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, I've got to keep hearing this, because the world, what does the world tell me? It tells me, put myself first. Because I'm worth it. Because I'm number one. Because I'm amazing. I keep listening to that, I'm going to put you down. I've got to listen to this. The Christian must put others first because they're worth it, because they're more important than you, because they're amazing. This is all about putting the eternal well-being of others before our own petty interests. 
What a difference that approach to life makes. Let me ask you this as a sort of way of working out verses 3 and 4. When you walk into a room, what is going on in your mind? Do you walk into into a situation saying, here am I? Is that your kind of approach? I mean, you wouldn't say that, I hope. But is that what's going on in your head? Do you walk in with the attitude, I've arrived, look at me, give me your attention. Now, when you came into church this evening, did you, did you think to yourself, here am I? Or do you walk in saying, oh, there are you. There are you. You, the others in the room, are the focus of attention. I'm here for you. If we all thought there are you, our meetings together would be very different. Well, they wouldn't be so different because I think many of us do do this, but they would be very different to the world, wouldn't they? But I tell you how it would work out on a Sunday. We would notice newcomers and those on their own because we wouldn't be saying here am I, we'd be saying there are you. Who's on their own? Let me go and speak to them. In conversation, it wouldn't be all about what I've done and where I'm going, it would be about how are you doing? In any church community, we should stop thinking about ourselves and commit ourselves to others in the cause of the gospel. You see, despite what we hear in the songs, the greatest love of all is not to learn to love yourself. The greatest love of all is to lay down my life for others. And wonderfully, I do see this being worked out here at Forward. I hear people thinking like this. I'd like to talk to my friends, but I'm going to speak to newcomers and those on their own this evening. I'd like to sleep in on a Sunday morning, but instead I'm going to serve Christian parents by looking after their kids in the creche so that they can go to church. I've had a busy day, and while I'm ready to stay at home and have an early night and sort of curl up with a good book, I'm I'm going to make the effort to go to the home group so that I can encourage the rest of the group. That's putting others first, putting others' interests before my own. And when we think like that, we build the unity of the church and we stand firm together for the faith of the gospel. Now, let me tell you as, a, as an aside, which I don't know whether I've got time to do this. I had it in my notes and I've cut it out, but it's so important. If we live like that, it brings us joy. You see, look what Paul says in verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. He is often speaking of joy. Uh, This is a letter full of joy. Uh, He he begins by um, being full of joy. Verse 4, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. How does Paul get all this joy? He's banged up in prison, remember. Why is he so joyful? Do you remember last week how he said he wanted to go and be with Jesus, which would be wonderful. I'd, I don't, I'd like to die and go and be with Jesus, it'd be so good. But for your sake, Philippians, I'll stay and work for you. Do you remember that? Look what he says in verse 25 of chapter 1. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. He is full of joy because he's concerned for the joy of others. And you see, when you put others first, you're full of joy. When you want others to be full of joy, you will be full of joy as well. And if we all had that, that attitude, we would be so joyful, it would be wonderful. Do you see how the, wor- the world says, you look after yourself, you want to be happy, get things for yourself. You want to be really happy in life, you've got to go strive to get, become this person so that you can, you can be the best in your workplace, so that you can have all these fantastic big houses and wonderful things. That will be bring you joy. 
There's people all over the place that have everything and they're miserable as anything. Where do you get joy from? From serving others. That's what Paul is saying here, you see. So we should do it just because we should do it, but it's a wonderful thing. We should do it because it brings us joy. If you're not convinced, think about Christmas. When I was a lad, I, I, look, I love Christmas because I'm still a big, big, big a little boy at heart. No, I love Christmas because I'm a Christian minister and Christmas is really important. But, you know, just for the illustration, forget that for a moment. I love Christmas because I love presents. And uh, as a little boy, I used to love going under the, under the, under the tree. I mean, I'm almost small enough to get under the tree now, but uh, when I was even smaller, and sorting through the, the presents to see... Uh, which presents were for me. And I thought Christmas was going to be really great, not only if I had lots of presents, but if I had the really big ones. That's what I used to think Christmas... And now, look, I still love getting presents at Christmas, so come the 25th of December, send them, I'll open them happily. But now I know that the really joyful moment in Christmas is not getting the presents, but giving them. And we all know that as adults, actually, don't we? When you've bought something for somebody else and you see their face as they open it, it's just what they always wanted built into the, the very fabric of the universe because God, the one who gives himself, is one who, wants, who gets joy by giving and he wants us to have the same joy. We get it by giving. Have you noticed that? Just look at when you do a decent day's work, when, you, when you've given yourself for someone else in your day, rather than just lays around for yourself. It's far more satisfying, far more joyful. Put others first for the gospel. That's what we should be doing because it's a good thing to do because that's the way heaven operates. But let me tell you, a great spin-off is joy. Wonder why you're not joyful? It's because you're putting yourself first, maybe. Strive, uh, strive together for the gospel, first point. Second point, put others first for the gospel. And thirdly, follow Jesus, the heart of the gospel, verses 5 to 11. Look at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. These are the most magnificent verses. They warrant a whole sermon on their own, but they're actually here for one reason. They are here as an example of putting others before ourselves. You see, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. See, as you look at Jesus, you see how we should live. Jesus was God, equal with the Father. God the Father and God the Son, equal with one another. What does that tell us? He is worth it. He is number one. He is amazing. But, verse 6, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus was God, equal with God, and yet he didn't exploit his position for his own advantage. In the first of the two readings that, that Andy read for us earlier in the service, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to serve us. The Son of Man, the one who is in total authority over the whole world, came to serve you and me. Here is where the one true God is so different from all other so-called gods. 
Here's why Matthew and Anna have made exactly the right decision to follow Jesus. Here's why Anna was absolutely right when she said, get on board as well, you do it too. This God is so different from all other so-called gods. When I, was, uh, when I went to Singapore, I visited a, a, te- a typical temple Hindu, a Hindu temple. It was, um, it was full of uh, different statues of many different gods. And everything in the temple was about people serving the gods. They give, give gifts to the gods, taking them fruit and nuts and berries. Ordinary people, terrified of the gods, trying to do enough to them to please them, to, to appease them. Hey, you see, when you make up God, which is what the Hindus have done, when you make up your own gods, of course you get people to run around after you to serve you, because that's what you expect gods to do, isn't it? I'm God, you serve me. But that's not how it is with the one true God, with Jesus Christ. The real God of heaven and earth came to serve us. Isn't that mind-blowing? Rather than exploit his God-given right to be served, verse 7, he made himself nothing. The phrase there is actually this, he emptied himself. Well, theologians have spilt much ink over the meaning of this. They ask whether Jesus emptied himself of this part of his godness or some other part of his godness. That's not the point at all. Alec Matier explains it brilliantly as he writes this, the issue is not of what did Jesus empty himself, but into what. See this? Here's the thing. Jesus, God himself, emptied himself, put his whole self into a servant. Verse 7. Made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Of a slave is actually the word. He come to serve us. William Taylor sums it up in these words, God became one with no rights, no rank, no privilege, no power, no significance and no status other than as one who is there to serve. And before we leave these verses, do you see the movement of these verses? They go down, 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 down. Here is God the Son, Jesus equal with God the Father. But he doesn't use that privilege, that place of authority for his own advantage. Rather, he became nothing. He became a slave, the lowest of the low. And if that wasn't enough, what does verse 8 tell us? Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Do you see it? He came down from heaven to earth, not as King of England or President of the United States. He came as a slave, and then as a slave, he humbled himself. And he came even lower down. He went to die. And even in death, he went as low as he could by dying on a cross. Please see how shocking this is. God was prepared to suffer death even on a cross. We don't see how shocking it is today. Uh, Today the cross has been domesticated. Women and some men dangle crosses from their ears. Our bishops hang crosses around their necks. Our churches display crosses on their buildings and no one is shocked. We expect it. But just suppose for a moment we put a fresco of the gas chambers and the mass graves of Auschwitz at the front of our church. That would shock The cross in the first century had that kind of social impact. You wouldn't mention the cross in polite conversation, not if you wanted to be invited back again. Far too offensive. Don't mention the cross. 
And now Paul says, the Lord Christ whom you are serving made himself a servant and that wasn't enough. He became obedient to his father's will descending all the way to death and not just any death but to death on a cross. Paul says, take that word and stuff it up your understanding. The language is meant to shock and the big point is this. In Jesus, God shows himself to be a giver, not a getter. The greatest love of all is not to learn to love yourself, but to lay down your life for others. For the sake of others, for the sake of the salvation of others, Jesus put others first. Listen again to William Taylor. God is prepared to take every advantage, every privilege and every possession and to use all that he has as an opportunity for unreserved self-sacrifice on behalf of his people. And here at the cross we see God in all his majesty. Just think of all the miracles that Jesus did. The feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. The healing of people who couldn't walk or see or hear. Jesus walking on water, calming a raging storm. How he raised people from the dead. They were amazing miracles. And they were done in part to demonstrate that he is God. Yet please note this, the most God-like thing Jesus did was this. He chose not to exploit his own divine power for personal gain, but instead he emptied himself into the form of a slave, giving himself for the sake of others. You and I see just how glorious God is, not when we look at the miracles, but when we look at the man being executed on a hill in Palestine, for then we see that God is a giving God. This is our God, the servant king, and he calls us now to follow him. To live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ by following his example, by putting others first, by looking not to your own interest, but to the interests of others, by having the eternal salvation of others as your primary concern, just as Jesus did, by putting aside all your own petty personal agendas and saying other people are more important than me and by contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That's what this passage calls us to do. And Jesus is our supreme example. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know the pressures we have in this world as the world again and again tells us to put ourselves first. The world lures us into thinking that if we put ourselves as number one, we'll be happy. We thank you for revealing the the, the lie of that to us through your word this evening. We thank you that we've seen just a glimpse of that in our own lives, that when we put others first, it has brought us joy. That is the way the world works best. That is at the very fabric of the universe. And so we ask you, please, Heavenly Father, to help us to believe this in those moments when we're tempted to strive with our own little ambitions. We give you huge thanks for this church family, for the unity we enjoy, for the the gospel-centred and gospel-heartedness of this church family. And we, we pray for it to continue. And we ask you to please help us to do our part, all of us, 
uh, to put aside our own agendas that it may continue for your praise and glory and for the good of others. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.